0: We're going to have prayer and get right into Matthew chapter 27 today. Our sermon this morning is titled, The God Forsaken God. The God Forsaken God. And we'll be sort of panning out, sort of drawing back and taking a look at what's happening in some of that theological depth that we talked about last week. And so we'll start with prayer, and then we'll get into our message titled, The God Forsaken God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the presence of Pastor Joel here and Pastor Boris and Pastor David Haupt. Lord, we are blessed here with a pastoral staff and with the Arise group coming and with Boris here as the outreach coordinator. Father, we've got a great team of elders. We are just thrilled with the leadership that you have put in place in this church. But Father, we believe that the true leader is Jesus the shepherd. We are but under shepherds and Jesus is the great shepherd, the shepherd of the flock, And so we look to Him, we believe in Him, and today in Scripture as we go to that experience, that dark midnight of the soul experience where Jesus hung on Calvary's cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, I pray that somehow, some way, that what takes place today would transcend words. I pray that something supernatural, something spiritual, and even emotional would come into this room and into our hearts. Father, we're going to be looking at texts, and we're going to be thinking, and there's going to be a cerebral element, but Father, I pray that you would penetrate not just our brains and our minds, but penetrate our hearts and our wills. Father, today melt our heart with the thing that melted the heart of Jesus. We look to you, we believe in you. And today, we want to clear a picture of you as we look through the lens of Jesus on Calvary's tree. We pray in His name, let everyone say, amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 27. And this might be a bit of an unusual way to start a sermon, but I was thinking about this early this morning, and I've actually been thinking about it all week. And I'm not sandbagging myself here or setting myself up for failure when I say in total transparency that it is a virtual guarantee that at some level today's sermon will be a failure. Not because I'm planning to fail and not because I've underprepared, but because the depth and the significance and the profundity of the topic that we are advancing to understand today is something that, frankly, we are like ants trying to understand quantum physics. We are goldfish trying to understand calculus. We are coming up against something here That with our limited mental capacities, our limited emotional capacities, with our limited linguistic capacities, we will try and comprehend the incomprehensible. And so I will make every effort, and I have prayed, and I have studied, and you are prayed up, and we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. We will make every effort to make this a success, being fully aware that there will be a significant sense in which today's sermon, in fact any sermon about this topic, would be a failure. That it will fail to communicate adequately the length and breadth and depth of the profundity and the significance of what we're discussing here today. We're talking about something that is incomprehensible. First of all, just by way of introduction, God is incomprehensible. We do not know what a God is in the same way that we know what. Uh, a giraffe is, or a rhinoceros is, or a goldfish is. We know what those things are. If I say giraffe or rhinoceros or goldfish, you get a picture, a mental picture and portrait in your mind. There are referents to which we can just immediately get, yep, giraffe, the spots and the long neck, and goldfish swims around in a bowl. We get a picture. But when we talk about God, we are almost certainly uh, incorrect in our apprehension of what we are talking about. We do not know what a God is in terms of His essential being, His essential nature. The thing that makes a God a God is incomprehensible to us. It is impossible for us to, with our, with our faculties, mental faculties and other faculties, to apprehend what it is that we're talking about. So as if God is not mysterious enough, and there are many ways that Scripture communicates the mysteriousness of God. For example, Moses on the top of Mount Sinai said, God, I want to see you. Show me your glory. God's response to Moses was, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will put my hand over you, and you can only see my back because no man can see my face and live. This is God's way of saying, you, I know what you're asking, and I know what you think you want, but you don't know what you're asking, and you don't want what you think you want. The chasm and the, 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 the synapse... That separates God in his godness and in his holiness and in his essence from any creaturely being, from any created being, is an unbridgeable, unfathomable chasm. Okay? So we do not know what a God is. Now we can, through Jesus, know who God is in terms of his essential personhood, his character, the kind of being that he is, but what he is is a mystery to us. And not only is it now a mystery, 10,000 years from now, it will be similarly mysterious. A million years from now, if you lived a million years in the glories of heaven, you would be no closer to apprehending God's nature than you are today. What we're going to try and discuss today is that God in his nature, insofar as it was possible, became a man. But we've been talking about that all the way through the Gospel of Matthew. This is the centerpiece of the Gospel of Matthew. And she will bear a child, and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And so we've sort of slowly been trying to get our mind, not just in our series on Matthew, but over the course of our religious lives and our Christian experience, trying to get our mind wrapped around the idea of God, an incomprehensible, unfathomable being, becoming a man. Already we are way out of our depth. We don't understand God in his essential nature in essence. We don't understand how the infinite, illimitable, eternal God of the universe could become a man, but what we're going to talk about today is a mystery wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in a mystery, and that is that God, who became a man, is going to die. He who is the very source of life, the very fountain of life, will, in some significant sense, perish. He will die. And we are out of our depth. We, we are, again, goldfish trying to contemplate quantum physics or ants trying to understand, you know, the, the sublimities and the nuances of calculus. We will do our best. We will scratch at the surface. We will seek to understand. But we must confess at the outset that we are dealing with a mystery, which is God, which wraps around another mystery, which is God becoming a man, which wraps around a still greater mystery, how that man can die. So let's go to Matthew chapter 27 and read a passage that we've been through before, but we're going to read it again to sort of set the time and space. We have a sense of where we are in the flow of Matthew's gospel. We're in verse 45, Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1. We'll be there shortly. Some of those who stood there when he cried, when when they heard that, said, Ah, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, took a sponge, and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Leave him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out yet again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. There it is. Yielded up his spirit. That is to say, he died. We already do not have a clue what we're talking about. I know the words are on the page and I can read the words. It says he yielded up his spirit. I get that, but we don't know at this point. We are out of our theological depth. We are out of our philosophical depth. We are out of our intellectual depth. We are nowhere near really understand what's going on here because we have God who is a mystery, God is a man which is a mystery, and now God is a man dying. He breathed his last. The very fountain of life, the creator himself, it says it right there, and he yielded up his spirit. Verse 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth quaked. We talked about this last week, and the rock split. Jump down to verse 54. So when the centurion and those with him that were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there, looking on from afar. Among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and jo- uh, Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Our sermon today is titled "The God-Forsaken God," and we find ourselves in our final of our final chapter, seven chapters we've been going through. Jesus as Conqueror. We've been through teacher and seer and healer and leader and preacher and son. Today. We continue our, our exploration of Jesus as Conqueror. And in that exploration this week, I found myself back in that classic on the life of Christ, The Desire of Ages, reading again the chapter Calvary, followed by It is Finished, followed by In Joseph's Tomb. Just pouring over those texts, marking, meditating, rereading, marking again, meditating again, just soaking my mind in this profoundly beautiful exposition of what's taking place in the Gospels with regards to the death of Jesus. And I came across this statement from Ellen White in that marvelous book. He who in all other eyes appeared to be conquered was a conqueror. Can the church say amen? This has been our basic point all along. Fascinatingly, when we named Jared, Pastor Jared and myself, when we named these seven chapters, I didn't have this quotation in mind. So this was, a, this was a gem that was discovered this week for me. I was so happy to see this statement. Because there on the cross... Jesus looks to all appearances, to all eyes, to all observations as one that has been conquered. And yet she makes this really poetic point. In fact, he was the conqueror. How can someone who is bruised and bleeding and dying on a Roman instrument of torture be a conqueror? How can that be the victorious person? Last week we discussed the mocking and the jockeying of the soldiers as they pushed Jesus to and fro. And hail the king of the Jews. And if you were to take any person as an outside observer and they were to observe that situation and you were to ask them the simple question, hey, someone in this situation possesses power and someone in this situation possesses no power, who has no power in this situation? Any observer, any journalist would look at that and say, well, that guy, that guy that's getting pushed around and jockeyed between the Roman centurions who has the crown of thorns on his head and the reed in his hand and the scarlet robe upon him, he is powerless he is powerless. And who does possess power, we would ask the observer? Well, the Rome, by way of the, the centurions and their muscle and the metal that they possess. They are in control of this situation. They, are in, they possess power. That would be our observation. If we could have been there on that fateful day looking up at Jesus on the cross, and we would have been asked the question, who is conquered and who is conqueror? As a passerby or a bystander, we would not have said, Oh, that guy on the Roman instrument of torture, he's the conqueror. He's the most powerful being in the universe. He's the the victorious one. And yet hear this great quotation. He who in all other eyes appeared to be conquered was a conqueror. One of the things I love about this passage is that the first to announce the post-crucifixion identity of Jesus Christ is a Gentile. Can the church say amen? Amen. Of course it is. Of course it is. We we should not be surprised by this when it comes to the Gospel of Matthew. I love the way that Craig Keener puts it in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. As in Matthew chapter 8 verses 8 to 12 where Jesus comes just after the Sermon on the Mount and he's approached by the Roman centurion who says, hey, my servant is sick. Will you please come and heal him? And Jesus is like, yeah, I'll come and heal him. And then the centurion's like, no, 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 you don't have to come. Just speak the word because I'm a man of authority like you. I tell people to go and go and come and they come. You just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And then Jesus picks his jaw up from the ground and he says, whoa, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. And then he says, your servant is healed. The first person in Palestine to to recognize and to affirm in unambiguous, unequivocal language that Jesus is Messiah is a Roman centurion. That's how Matthew sort of gets the the public ministry of Jesus going. And here we come now, the first person who's going to announce that Jesus is truly the Son of God post-crucifixion is, surprise, surprise, a Roman centurion. Notice how Keener continues. As in chapter 8, verses 8 to 12, the astonishing first confession in the Holy Land comes from a Gentile centurion. And as in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, the wise men, those who first acknowledge Jesus as King of Israel are those outside of God's household. God is working and God is doing something, but the way that Matthew is painting the picture and the story that Matthew is telling is one in which the people of God That is to say, the Jewish people, Jesus' own fraternal, uh, genealogical brothers, are not the ones who most often are recognizing what is going on around them. We have said this numerous times in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. A crucial feature of Matthew's Gospel is Jesus' positive relations with outcasts and Gentiles. And so, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that the first person to make The positive identification of Jesus as the Son of God post-crucifixion is none other than a Roman centurion. Friends, we mentioned this last week, but I'm going to say it again. If the church doesn't do what the church is called to do, if the church sits on its hands, if the church is emasculated or otherwise paralyzed, God is not emasculated and paralyzed. God can raise up a Roman centurion. He can raise up Simon the Cyrenian to carry the cross of Jesus. God has his people everywhere, not just in the church, not just in the Seventh-day Adventist church, and not just in this local church. Can the church say amen? Now, we can be a part of and we can be partnering with God in the larger work that He's doing in the world, but God has His people everywhere. And the Gospel of Matthew goes to great lengths and great pains to tell us the story. Yes, God was working with the Jews, but not only with the Jews. And the takeaway message for us is, yes, God is working in the Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church. Yes, God is working in the wider Seventh-day Adventist Church. But God is working with everyone everywhere. Can the church say amen? He is not parochial. He is not insular. He's a bigger God than that. And frankly, he's a better God than that. Now, the feature of our sermon last Sabbath was on this really fascinating idea, and I had a number of you talk to me about it, and I'm so glad that you were as moved by it as I was, this idea that Jesus introduced a way of living and even a standard of living, an ethic in the Sermon on the Mount that he then followed at Calvary. That ethic that he established, that moral rectitude that he had advised us about, he himself not only talked the talk, he walked the walk. And that's what the slide says here. On the Sermon on the Mount, which we're referring to here as the New Testament Sinai, he said things like turn the other cheek. And if somebody takes your coat, give them your cloak. And if they make you walk with them a mile, go too. And then when we come to Calvary, what do we see? Jesus turning the other cheek. Jesus agreeing with his adversary quickly. Jesus walking where he had been told to walk, etc. And we're going to see that in just a second. We made the point that in the Sermon on the Mount, we have announcement and we have promise. And in Calvary, we have achievement and we have performance. We recapitulated. I, I went through the Sermon on the Mount and read it with Calvary in mind. And we looked at 30 points of connection. We're not going to go through all of them. But the backbone of our sermon today will consist of three of the 30 that we looked at last week. Let's just remind ourselves of some of them. First of all, Jesus' death illumines the Beatitudes, and we dealt with that in depth last week. We won't spend time on it here. Jesus said, a city that is set on a hill. Jesus is now set on a hill. Jesus had said, you are the light of the world. His death and resurrection is now the light of the world. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. He has invited the world and I, when I am lifted from the earth, I will draw all peoples, all men to myself. His death glorifies His Father in heaven, which He had spoken of in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, don't think that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets till, one, uh, till heaven and earth pass away. Not one jot or one tittle will in any, wise pass, any way pass from the law. Jesus is fulfilling the very law and the prophets. Jesus said, except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter. Here is Jesus hanging on a cross, no complaint against him, no moral violation, no transgression. Even Pilate, Pilate, the the sort of two-bit Roman governor, had to confess, hey, what evil has this guy done? Jesus extends his arms, and truly his righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus said, don't even think to murder your brother in your heart. Jesus did not. Murder, but he was himself murdered. We're going to talk about that momentarily. Jesus said, Bring your gift to the altar. If your brother has something against you, bring your gift to the altar. Jesus has literally brought his gift to the altar, the gift of himself, to the altar of Calvary. Jesus said, Agree with your adversary quickly. Jesus stood before Caiaphas and the other accusers. He agreed with them quickly. It is as you say. He stood before Pilate. He didn't get into an argument or to a debate. It is as you say. And then finally, here, we noted this last week, Jesus went to hell so that others wouldn't have to. Jesus said this really crazy thing in the Sermon on the Mount. It's an ethic that frankly strikes us in its extremity. It's, it's too strong. It's, it's, it's offensive almost. He said, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. If your right hand offends you, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is better for your part of your body to, be, to perish than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is like, you don't want to go to hell. It's a really bad thing. And the problem with the English word hell is even now when I say it, I know that there is a massive tendency for all of us, a liability for us to misunderstand what it is that we're talking about, which is why what we're going to do right now is figure out what in the hell is hell? What is going on with hell? Hell is not a place of burning and torture. So you can disabuse your mind of that idea right now. Hell is not, I will say, primarily a place of burning and torture. But as we're going to see here today, hell is the experience of total separation from God. Now let me give you, let me buttress that biblically. Let me show you that systematically as we sort of pan out from the Gospel of Matthew here, let's do a systematic treatment insofar as it's possible with our time a lot of this morning. And let's take a look at hell in the context of the whole of Scripture. First of all, there are three primary words that are translated hell in the English Bible. In the Old Testament, you have the Hebrew word sheol, sheol. And it's trans- it occurs 65 times. And it's translated variously as grave, hell, pit, And often it's just transliterated as Sheol, right? Rather than saying hell or grave, they transliterate the word. That is to say they just take the Hebrew word and they just write it out in the English so that you'll go, hey, what is Sheol? And you'll have to go investigate and go figure out what is meant by that word rather than bringing all of the baggage and, in most cases, all of the incorrect baggage that comes along with a word like hell. So that's the word, Sheol. Sheol. Let me give you a few instances of how the word Sheol is used in the Old Testament. Job chapter 7, verse 9. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He who goes down to Sheol. This does not mean a place of burning and torture. It means the grave. He that goes down to Sheol does not come up. The ancients observed that when people stopped breathing, they never started breathing again. When they stopped breathing, you buried them or you otherwise, you know, took care of them and they were gone. Just as the cloud vanishes away, people stop breathing. They, we put them into Sheol. They're gone. They go away into the grave or into the pit. Psalm 49, verse 15, the psalmist says, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, Sheol, for he will receive me. Grave, Sheol. Amos chapter 9, verse 2, though they dig into Sheol. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Right? You you couldn't literally dig down into a fiery abyss. And I know that medieval thinking had this portrait, this picture of lava and demons and sulfur and brimstone, a location that you could plot on a GPS and go to. That's That's not what Amos is talking about here. What he's saying is you can dig up the grave. And then finally here, Jonah chapter 2, verse 2. This is a really helpful one because Jonah was not buried, and he wasn't even dead, though he seemingly was dead. He was in the belly of a fish, and he was taken down to the bottom of the sea. And he says, I cried out to Yahweh because of my affliction, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So to the ancient mind, to the Hebrew mind, when they're talking about the netherworld, the after, the the grave, what happens when people stop breathing, they called it Sheol, the grave, the pit. What happens after this? We come now to the New Testament. In the New Testament, there are two primary words that are rendered as hell. Hades is used 11 times, the Greek word Hades, and also the word Gehenna, 12 times rendered hell. Let's look at Hades briefly. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That is to say, the gates of the grave, the gates of death, will not prevail against my kingdom of life. Luke chapter 10, verse 15. And you, Capernaum, Jesus said, who are exalted to heaven, you will be brought down to Hades, down to the grave, down to death. Very similar to the word Sheol in the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, maybe my very favorite use of Hades in all of the New Testament. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your victory? None of these texts require, not only, not only do they not require it, none of these texts intimate a place of burning or of torture, and su- certainly not some place that could be plotted on a GPS where Satan is superintending the torture of souls that have passed. No, for the ancients, both Old Testament and New Testament, whether Hades or Sheol, it was a place where the dead went. It was the grave. It was the pit. It was death. We transition now to the third word, which is the only word of the three that actually does have an intimation and a suggestion of burning and of destruction, and it is the Greek word Gehenna. Translated hell, 12 times. Here's probably the best known, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. We'll come back to this later. Do not fear those, Jesus said, who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Ah, this is a little different now. This is not merely the grave. This is not merely a place of burial or a pit. This is a place where the body and the soul are destroyed. Gehenna. Not Hades, not Sheol, but Gehenna. Larry Pearson, the outline of biblical usage, says this of the Greek word Gehenna. Originally, it comes from the valley of Hinnom. Hinnom. Sounds similar to Gehenna. Hinnom. South of Jerusalem, where the filth and dead animals of the city were cast out and burned. Notice what he says here. It was a fit symbol of the wicked and their future. What's the last word there? What's the last word, everyone? destruction. So of the three words that are available to us here, the three primary words that are rendered as hell, Sheol means grave or pit, Hades, grave or pit. Gehenna, though, is a place of destruction. To the south of Jerusalem was the valley of Hinnom, and it's the place where refuse and rubbish was thrown right? Dead animals were thrown in there, and food scraps were thrown in there, and unwanted things were thrown in there. And if somebody could not afford a proper burial, if they didn't have a family or a beggar on the street, or perhaps a a, a real malfactor in first century society, even a person could be thrown into the valley of Hinnom. And that word Gehenna is a contraction of the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. It was a place of total destruction, There were maggots, and there were worms, and there was a fire, a low-grade fire that was continually burning there, sort of burning down the mass of refuse that was being thrown into the Valley of Hinnom. So hell. Hell is not a place superintended by Satan and overseeing, you know, lava pits of varying degrees of heat. That's not what's taking place here. It's a place of death, it's a place of the pit, it's a place of the grave, and it is a place of total destruction. We will return to this. Now we talk briefly about death in Scripture, death in Scripture. This comes as a giant surprise to a whole lot of people, including a whole lot of Christian people, and it might even come as a surprise to some of you here today. The Bible, in fact, speaks of two deaths, the first death and what the Bible calls the second death. Let's try and understand them. The first death is bodily death and decay. When someone dies, when they stop breathing, whether because of cancer or a heart attack or a car accident, their body goes into the ground, or perhaps they are cremated, but their their body rots away, it decays away. The Bible calls that death, or even better, a sleep. It's a sleep. There is a resurrection from this death. The second death, however is not just the end of the body, the physical being, it's the end of one's very essence, existence, or personhood, and there is no resurrection from this death. So the first death you can think of as a sleep or as of a slumber. When Jesus was speaking about his friend Lazarus who was ill, he said, our friend Lazarus sleeps. The disciples, he said, but I'm going to go wake him up. The disciples protested and said, Jesus, if he's sick, it's best to let him sleep. He then said, Lazarus is dead. The Bible, both Old and New Testaments regularly, I'm talking dozens of times, refers to the first death as a sleep, as a slumber, as a kind of torpor where your conscience is, you're just out of consciousness, you're you're in a state of suspended animation, but you are not blotted out of existence. The second death is a whole different kettle of fish. The second death is not merely bodily decay or a slumber. The second death is the end of the person that you are. And maybe just a brief parenthetical statement about that. I think I might have discussed this in the church before, but I'll just remind you of it because we have visitors here today. You cannot imagine your own non-existence. Just try it. Go ahead right now and try it. You failed. You cannot imagine your own non-existence because you're imagining it. You are a party in the imagination. You have probably, perhaps, uh, imagined your own funeral. Right? People imagine what their funeral will be like and what music they might like played and who will attend and all of that kind of thing. You can imagine your funeral, but you're really not imagining it because when you're imagining it, you're sort of, you know, maybe in a tree or you're like in a, you know, some bird-like perspective looking down to say, who came to my funeral, right? What kind of finger food was served at my funeral, right? Who cried at my funeral, right? So you can kind of imagine your funeral, But what you cannot imagine is your non-existence. Because you have to be there actively imagining your non-existence. It is a philosophical and an ontological impossibility to imagine your own non-existence. Which, by way of closing the parenthesis, I take to be a profoundly persuasive argument that you were not made to die. You were made to live so much so that you are incapacitated from even imagining your own death. The second death is something that is totally foreign to us. It's so foreign to us that we can't imagine it. We cannot imagine our own non-existence, but that's what's being described here. It's not just the death of the body. It's not just the decay of your physicality. It's the absence of you permanently, irrevocably. That's the second death. So we've got hell in Scripture, we've got death in Scripture. Now the first death, the sleep, is hell in the sense of being in the grave, and it's the temporary end of life. So in a sense, you can talk about hell as the first death because you go to the grave, you go into the pit. But the second death is more profoundly hell because it is in the sense of the end of one's being, not the temporary end of one's life from which there is a resurrection, but the permanent end of one's life which, again, you cannot imagine. It's impossible. So let me kind of introduce to you how Scripture uses death in this way. And you might have read these verses before. In fact, I'll use two of the best-known verses in all of the Bible to show you just how significant and just how essential this fundamental teaching about life and death is to the core of Scripture. So Romans chapter 6, verse 23 is probably one of the best-known verses in all the Bible, and it says, The wages of sin is death. But notice I've inserted two words there. The wages of sin is the second death. The wages of sin is the second death, but watch this. But in contrast to eternal non-existence is the gift of eternal life which comes through Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is not a bodily sleep. It's not a bodily rest. We know this for a variety of reasons, but probably the best is... It's just basically this idea that everybody dies, even those that have put their faith in Jesus, right? There are a few exceptions, and I'm aware of those exceptions, Enoch and Elijah, etc. But even somebody who has put their faith in Jesus, who is, who is totally believing in God and who has accepted the righteousness of God that is available to them, even their body decays, they go into the grave. That's not what's being spoken of here, the wages of sin primarily. The wages of sin is death, is the second death. It's it's that separation from God that brings about inevitably and necessarily the end of one's being and essence. And certainly the best-known verse in all the Bible is John 3.16, and notice how it's right here on display, unmistakable, unmissable. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not, what's the word, perish, and notice I've inserted the words, the second death, should not perish, but in contrast to eternal death is everlasting life. God did not send Jesus merely to rescue you from a bodily sleep any more than God sent Jesus to rescue you from your evening sleep or your afternoon nap. God sent Jesus to rescue you from a terminal, irrevocable end of your existence, which again, you cannot comprehend. Now, what does all this have to do with Matthew chapter 27? And the answer is a whole lot more than the vast majority of Christians understand. And I'm going to say something right here that's going to sound a little pious. It's going to sound a little triumphalist. Excuse me, a little triumphant. It's going to sound maybe a little elitist, but it's not intended to be that. I'll try to say it as humbly as possible. If you do not understand the basic structure that we have covered here briefly about hell and death in scripture, you cannot understand what is happening on the cross. And I know that's a huge claim. I know that's a giant claim. That's a claim that would probably offend a whole lot of my brothers and sisters in other Christian faiths and denominations, but I stand by it. If we do not know what's happening with hell, what hell is and what hell isn't, Hell is not a place of burning and torture that you, you know, exist in for unending ages and is superintended by Satan and his demonic forces. Hell is total, irrevocable, eternal separation from God. And if we do not understand what death is, death is not merely a blink and you go straight to heaven. No, death is is a slumber that awaits the resurrection, whether of the righteous or of the wicked. But the second death is the death from which there is no resurrection. It is the terminus of your existence. If you don't understand this basic structure, this basic systematic superstructure of what the Bible calls death and what the Bible calls hell, you come to the cross and there you see Jesus hanging lifelessly on that Roman instrument of torture and you don't know what's happening. This is why when Mel Gibson made his The Passion of the Christ, which I didn't see, I didn't want to see it. No offense if you saw it, you're welcome to have seen it, but I, I purposefully didn't see it for a few reasons. First of all, I knew there was no way that Mel Gibson could make a movie accurate about the life of Jesus. His theology prevents him from doing it. He cannot do it, and so what ends up happening in that movie, and I read many reviews of it, and by the way, you might have been blessed by it, and you're welcome to have been blessed by it, but here's the thing. In the reviews of the movies and in the conversations that I've had with those who have seen it, Jesus undergoes... Truly superhuman physical suffering. At one point I'm told he's even thrown off a bridge and he's fledged. I mean, he undergoes things that no human being could endure. Impossible. But but, but what, what Gibson has to do, because his basic Catholic theology demands it, is he has to massively exaggerate the physical sufferings of Jesus because when they come to the cross, that's what they see. They see a physical man hanging on a physical cross who has undergone physical torture, and that's the point. And so there's this morbidity and this bloodiness, and it's essential to emphasize, overemphasize, even exaggerate grotesquely, the physical sufferings of Jesus. Because when they come to the cross, they're like, well, that's what's happening. There's a guy on a wooden cross, and there's nails, and there's spears, and there's flagellation, and there's thorns, and there's a robe, and there's, that's what's happening. And this is not only for our friends the Catholics, it's for anybody who comes to the cross and who, who deigns to apprehend what's happening there without a biblical understanding of what hell is and what death is. The best you can do is say what Jesus is doing is really awesome, really beautiful, and really painful. But there is a depth, there is a sublimity underneath this wooden cross that can be appreciated as we dive into the whole text of what Scripture is saying. I remind you of Matthew 10, 28. I said we would come back here. Do not fear those who kill the body, first death, but cannot kill the soul, the being, the essence, second death. But rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body, whereat everyone. In hell. Now take that verse and put it together with this verse. Here is Jesus stumbling clumsily into the garden of Gethsemane. And as he stumbles clumsily into the garden of Gethsemane, he falls to his face. He doesn't say, Oh, my back is bothering me. I should have never lifted those rocks. He doesn't say, Oh, I stubbed my toe on an olive branch root. Oh, that really hurts. I wish I hadn't done that. When Jesus stumbles clumsily and terrifiedly into the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Let me translate that for you. My soul is dying. Question, church. Is that first death or second death? That's second death. That's not a mere bodily decomposition. That's not... What's happening in Gethsemane? Jesus has not been whipped... Right? Jesus hasn't even been arrested yet. Last thing that the disciples saw, you know, they're at the dinner and eating and having a good time at the Passover. The disciples are clueless. And then Jesus brings his disciples out by night and he takes Peter, James, and John. He's like, hey, look, I need you guys to come and pray with me. Something about getting to Gethsemane. When Jesus gets to Gethsemane, he is here in the words of Isaiah being numbered with the transgressors. And a, a weight comes upon him. A weight comes upon Him. I'm going to read you probably the best known passage in all of Scripture describing Jesus as the suffering servant and Messiah. And as I read this to you, these will be, this will be a passage of Scripture that you've heard before. I want you to notice all of the references, I will point them out, to wait, or to bearing something, or to a load. Who has believed our report? Isaiah 53, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he will grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jumping down to verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. His soul. He will see his seed and shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He will see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, for he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and, will, and shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. He poured out his soul unto death, not just his body, his soul unto death. When Jesus stumbles into Gethsemane, my soul is dying. And then finally, because he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's inescapable. When Isaiah the gospel prophet sees the suffering Messiah in prophetic vision looking forward, he's carrying something. Something has been laid upon him. There's a burden and there's a weightiness that's crushing him. He's not been whipped, he's not been flagellated. There is no cross, there is no crown of thorns, there is no jockeying by Roman centurions in the Garden of Gethsemane, and yet Jesus is saying, I'm dying. How is he dying? Because what's happening to Jesus is not primarily physical. And this is where Gibson and many other well-meaning, sincere Christians miss the point. In fact, they so miss the point, I'm going to drop a quotation on you in just a second, that's mind-blowing. In Gethsemane and on the cross, Jesus was not merely dying bodily death. Jesus was experiencing the second death, that is to say, the end of one's soul and thus of their being In this profound and incomprehensible sense, a mystery inside of a mystery inside of a mystery. God is mysterious. God as a man is mysterious. God dying is incomprehensibly mysterious. None of us know what we're talking about. The sermon is a failure. We don't know what we're talking about here. But insofar as we're able to apprehend it, Jesus went to hell. He endured the experience of total separation from his heavenly Father, which is why he prayed three times in the garden. Take this cup away from me. Please take this cup away from me. Please take this cup away from me. That cup was the Old Testament cup that the prophets wrote and spoke about on many occasions. It was the cup of God's wrath and of God's anger and ultimately of separation from Yahweh. Craig Keener, again, in his commentary on Matthew, says it perfectly. Jesus participated in humanity's ultimate alienation from God in experiencing the pain of death. By the way, there are some evangelicals that get it. There are even some Seventh day Adventists that get it. Not everybody doesn't get it. If you don't have a basic understanding of the first and the second death and a basic understanding of what hell is and isn't, all you can do is come to the cross in your mind's eye and say, wow, that was a hugely significant, physically painful thing that Jesus endured on my behalf. I'm so thankful. And you can take the, you know, Gibsonian way and massively exaggerate the physical sufferings of Jesus because they don't know what's happening. The truth of the matter is, is that what's taking place is not primarily physical. There's something far greater going on here. Back to our parallels with the Sermon on the Mount. Number 22, he laid up his treasure, that is to say, us in heaven. Jesus had said, lay up your treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And then 27 from our sermon last Sabbath, he placed tomorrow in God's hands. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Jesus not only talked the talk, he walked the walk. Because when he's hanging there on Golgotha's tree, he literally cannot see tomorrow. He cannot see it. You're going to say, oh, no, 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 no. He's God. He's God. He can see whatever he wants. Friends, if you play that card, then the whole Bible falls apart. The whole gospel doesn't make any sense. If Jesus is just a superman walking around, you know, clothed, you know, meekly and mildly in the clothes of a human being, but he's really all-powerful and he's really uh, all-present and he's really all-knowing, then the whole thing is a farce. It's a joke. Jesus is like wink, wink, nod, nod. I'm pretending to be a human. Come along with me on this divine drama and we'll call it the plan of salvation. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is a human being. And in his human emotional uh, terror, he cannot see that this separation from the load that he's been carrying since Gethsemane, that that separation will be anything other than eternal. He literally placed tomorrow in God's hands, and returning to the desire of ages, Ellen White captures this perfectly. Satan with his fierce temptations wrung the heart of Jesus. Notice this not wrung the body of Jesus. Yeah, that's a part of it, but it's less than 1% of what's happening. Wrung the heart of Jesus. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. That is a poetic way of saying he couldn't see tomorrow. So when he said to you, Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. He wasn't just being, you know, a pious, platitudinous rabbi and and advising you on things that he himself didn't know. He's not just super Jesus walking around who really knows what's going on and what's going to happen. This is Jesus in terror, in fear, and in, in the horror of separation from his father, who even when he couldn't see tomorrow, trusted God's goodness. And you can do that. Even when you can't see tomorrow, you can trust God's goodness. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave of conqueror. Or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared. Just let the, let the, the depth and the significance and the, the, the gigantishness, the, 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 the hugeness of that rest upon your soul right now for a moment. He feared. God feared. As a man, Jesus here is legitimately not play-acting, not give him the Oscar. He is afraid. Have you ever been afraid? As astonishing as this is, God can relate to your fear. He feared. What he feared is almost of, of secondary consequence. The fact that he feared immediately, in, endears us to God, and, and endears God to us, and it helps us to... What? God was afraid? God didn't know about the future? God was scared? God, Really? Oh, I tell you, this is an approachable, this is a believable, this is an amazing God. He feared, what did he fear? That sin was so offensive to God, that load that he was carrying, that weight of the sin of the world, that their separation was to be eternal. Christ felt... The anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy will no longer plead for the guilty race. Feeling is important. I've recently had an experience about this. You maybe saw a little glimmer of it. Those that are closer to me have seen a little more of it. Like I mentioned a few weeks ago that a very close friend of mine died. A very close friend, my age, 46 years young, died of cancer. Terrible story. Two young children. One of my dearest friends in the world And what I learned in that experience, I learned a lot of things in that experience, and I think I'm still learning them. One of them is is that I do not know how to grieve, which was a really disorienting thing to learn as a minister and as a Christian. I've had my, my grandmother has died and my grandfather has died, and I have had some people that have been, you know, somewhat proximate to me, but I never had a close brother in arms die. I mean, I've never had anything like this before. And one of the things that I learned about myself is I do not know how to grieve, I dealt with Martin's passing, and to some degree, still am dealing with Martin's passing totally on an intellectual level. Because for me, and I don't know if this is a product of my childhood or what, I'm just bearing my soul here a little bit, I find it very difficult to tap into those emotional spaces and places where I can just not have to know what's going to happen and just be sad. I knew Martin was going to die. I knew he was going to die for two years. He had contracted cancer. He just chose to not treat it in the, uh, the sort of traditional way. And so it was a virtual certainty that he was going to die. So this is the thing. Intellectually, I knew that Martin would pass. And intellectually, I know that he's a believer and he will be raised. But I was still absolutely devastated when I received the email. Why should that be? I don't know. I, I, you probably are far more emotionally adept and in, in tune than I am. But I was actually amazed at how crushed I was in my soul. and My wife saw glimmers of this, and some of you that are closer to me have seen glimmers of this. Uh, this really strange thing was happening to me where intellectually I knew he was going to die, so I had two years to prepare for it. I know that he's going to be raised in the resurrection because he's a believer, and yet was still devastated by the experience, by the emotions, and by the feeling. So Jesus here might know scripturally, intellectually, that there's the promise of resurrection, but that doesn't in any way rob us of the, or him, of the reality of the terror of the experience, because he feels the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy will no longer plead with the guilty race, and he fears that he will never see God again. Human beings are not only intellectual and cerebral robotic entities. we are emotional. And sometimes our emotions get the better of us, and some of us are better at giving way to our emotional uh, sides than others. But Jesus was fully embraced the emotional reality that He thought the separation would be eternal. It was this sense of sin, bringing the Father's wrath upon Him as man's substitute, that made the cup He drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. The prophecy of the Messiah's suffering in Psalm 22 helps us grasp Jesus' emotional landscape. And I'm going to give you some homework to go read Psalm 22. Find a quiet moment. See if you can find five or ten minutes in your busy Sabbath afternoon schedule to go read Psalm 22. I'm purposely not going to read it for you here today to give you a homework assignment, but I will give you the highlights. And I want you to see the emotional landscape. Because Jesus quotes when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's straight out of Psalm 22, but it's the whole experience of the psalmist, which by the way, ends in triumph. It's beautiful. Ends in triumph, but man, it is a valley of the shadow of death before you get to the triumph. Look at this. Number one, why have you forsaken me? Number two, why are you so far from me? These are quotations right out of the psalm. I cry, but you don't hear. Everybody hates me and despises me. Don't be a a far away from me because trouble is close to me. Many bulls surround me. The feeling of being surrounded by antagonistic and angry forces, I am poured out like water. I'm being emptied, not just bodily, but soulfully. My heart is like wax. My strength is dried up. You have brought me to death. Five more. Dogs have surrounded me. The wicked enclosed me. They pierced my hands and feet. Oh, God, don't be far away from me. And then finally, just before the great triumph, comes this desperate plea. Help, deliver, save me. You read Psalm 22, and you enter into the emotional landscape of Jesus. Psalm 69 is another example, briefly. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity on me, but there was Nobody. And I looked for a comforter, but I found none. They gave me gall for food, and and in my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. These passages describe the feeling of total aloneness and abandonment. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it's an experience you have never had. You have had glimpses, perhaps, in the darkest moments of your life of aloneness and abandonment, but you have not experienced total, actual, definitive aloneness even to God to your Father, the one with whom you have been eternally bound. Jesus is on new territory here. Like the Starship Enterprise, He is bravely going where no man has gone before. No one has been in this galaxy. No one's even been close. It was an unheard of thing for one to die within six hours of crucifixion. Man, they came to the... They're like, man, He's dead already? People stayed alive up to a week on the cross. The purpose of the cross was to drag out death to make it humiliating and despairing and to drag it out as long as possible and and you get a sense of almost disappointment when Jesus, man, he's dead already. And he wasn't dead already because he went through Gibsonian torture on his way to the cross. He's dead because it wasn't the nails that killed him and it wasn't the flagellation that killed him. Something else was happening there. It was an unheard of thing for one to die within six hours of crucifixion, but it was not the spear thrust, it was not the pain of the cross that caused the death of Jesus. No, 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 no. He died of a broken heart. His heart was broken by mental anguish. He was slain by the sin of the world. This is what I mean, friends, when I say if we don't understand that hell is separation from God and we don't understand that there's both the bodily death and the soulful death, you come to the cross and all you see is the tip of the iceberg. You can say, well, that's a really big piece of ice. No, 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 no. There's a whole other thing going on under there. And that is that Jesus, insofar as it's possible, is experiencing emotionally not just the first bodily death, but he is embracing the, 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 the idea of his own non-existence, and he's not just embracing the idea of it cerebrally, he is embracing emotionally the fact he's not going to see tomorrow. I can give you the Bible here in three verses. Some of you might, could wish the sermons would be only three verses long. Here's the Bible in three verses. Galatians 3, verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He became a curse for us. He bore, he carried our sin and transgression and our hurtfulness and our cruelty and our injustice and our meanness. He bore all of that. I heard the most terrible story this week. I don't even want to repeat it. I feel like it, 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 it can't even repeat it. But I heard the most horrific story this week. A story that is terrible in and of itself, but made all the more terrible when it's advertised publicly via a live streaming site. Some of you might know what I'm referencing here. I mean, the world that we live in is an incomprehensibly evil world. And Jesus just bore all of that. Having become a curse for us. Here's the Bible in three verses. Cursed is the ground. There's the curse of Genesis. Christ became a curse for us. There's the cross. Revelation 22, there will be no more curse. There's the Bible in three verses. Cursed is the ground. Jesus takes the curse so that in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no more curse. Can the church say amen? Final Ellen White statement here. All his life, Christ has been publishing to a fallen world the good news of the Father's mercy and pardoning love. Salvation for the chief of sinners was his theme, but now with terrible, the terrible weight of guilt he bears, he cannot see the Father's reconciling face. The withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in this hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart with a sorrow that can never be fully by, understood by man. That's what I mean when I say the, the sermon is a failure. We, we wrap language, we wrap ideas, we wrap scriptural text around it, but at the end of the day, there's some level at which we are not comprehending what's happening here. And then this is the almost incomprehensible statement that I was referencing earlier. So great was this agony that the physical pain was hardly felt. Now, I want you just to just let that settle upon you for a moment. The purpose of crucifixion was to bring about maximal physical suffering. It was invented probably by the Persians, maybe the Carthaginians, and the point is to create maximal, elongated, physical suffering. That's where we get the word excruciating from, excrucia, out of the cross, right? To think that you would take the punishment that was devised in demonic you know laboratories to create maximal suffering and then for ellen white to have the audacity to say that the other pain the mental anguish the spiritual anguish the withdrawal of his father that that was so great that the physical pain was like hardly felt see this is why our friends that don't understand what's happening there that up that 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 larger iceberg Uh, Solidity that scriptural solidity about death and hell they just look at the cross and they think man that was amazing of God to go physically to the cross for us and that would be amazing but Jesus didn't just go physically to the cross he went spiritually to the place of death I want to say that again Jesus didn't just go physically to the cross he went spiritually to the place of death he went to the place where every unrepentant sinner will go so that no sinner would ever need to go that includes you he bore your sin, literally. C.S. Lewis has this great illustration. He says, imagine a, a dentist's office. And he said, if you have three people in there that have a toothache, oh, my tooth is killing me. And he says, you could take person one, number one, you could say their, tooth pay, their toothache is pain X. X. Hurts. Oh, how much does it hurt? It hurts X. And then you take person two, who also has a toothache. Oh, my tooth is killing me. How much does your tooth hurt? His, t- his tooth hurts X. And then you take the third person. Oh, I've got a terrible abscess tooth that hurts so bad. How bad does it hurt? X. So Lewis says you could say that the total pain in the room is 3X. How much pain is in the room? 3X. But then Lewis makes this profound observation while there is 3X in the room pain, No one is experiencing 3X. Everybody's experiencing only their own pain because he observes, you can only experience your own pain except in the case of Jesus, who experienced not only your pain and your shame and your guilt, but mine too. And every other person's. So that the total rippling composite weight of sin that Jesus bore is not just X. It's billion X. It's multiplied billions X. Jesus was himself God. His shoulders infinitely broad. And so he could bear not only one toothache. He could bear it all. All of it. And it killed him. When he saw the monstrosity that was the sin of mankind, the rebellion of mankind, the guilt of mankind, the shame of mankind, the blackness and darkness of mankind. And it was loaded upon him, even with his gigantic shoulders, his moral rectitude and ethical uprightness. When it was laid upon him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he could tell even then it was crushing. And so three times he says, can we not do this? Can we not do this? Can we not do this? And then finally on the cross, oh yeah, there was a nail. Yeah, there was a spear. There was some thorns and all that. Barely fell. Barely fell. I love this statement I read from Ellen White. She says, when Jesus died and the whole earth went black, she said it creation seemed to be shivering to atoms when the Creator dies. I'll come back to that in the future. I'm going to invite... Mel, are you coming up too? No? Okay, so I'm going to invite Britt and Brendan to come up, and they're going to sing a song that will help us to... It's a song I asked them weeks ago. I said, please sing this song. This song has to be a part of this sermon There's there's something that a sermon can do, there's something that words can do, there's something that scripture can do, and then there's something that music can do. And for me, I've heard lots of songs about the cross, lots of songs about what Jesus endured, but no song that I have personally heard captures the depth and the biblical robustness of what's taking place there. This is a beautiful song by a guy named Andy Gullihorn, who's a beautiful uh, Christian singer and songwriter. And the song is called God Forsaken Place. Jesus was the God Forsaken God. Ellen White, Desire of Ages says, Amid the awful darkness, apparently forsaken of God, apparently forsaken of God, Christ drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. That is to say, your sin, your guilt, your failure, your meanness, He bore all of it. There's no need for you to bear it. There's just no need for you to... It's already been carried. It's already been born. It's already been paid for. You can let it go. You can be free in Jesus. You don't need to go to hell ultimately, but you don't need to go to hell day to day. You don't need to go to those dark places because Jesus went to hell for you. You don't need to die ultimately. Maybe you'll take a nap if your body gets cancer or you have a tumor or something, but you don't need to die because Jesus died for you. And not only did Jesus go to hell for you, in our darkest moments he goes into those hells, those deaths, those darknesses, whether it's cancer or a betrayal or a a, a financial catastrophe or a professional disaster or an emotional landscape that you can barely fathom, he goes with you into those places. Last slide, Jesus went to the darkest place so that even in your darkest times, you would never be alone.
1: He said, you're never gonna lose my love Go ahead and try So you drank from the river Till it all ran dry And you run from your conscience as fast as you can, cause you're going to hell again. Hell is not a God forsaken Had somewhere to visit before the storm rolled away. Yeah, he went straight to hell where he knew he would go. Place. Even hell is not a God forsaken. Place.
0: Um, it's a big idea, a big impossible to comprehend notion that God could become a man and then experience things that we can relate to fear, loneliness, betrayal, and even death. Father, everybody in this room has been touched by death. Some of us very recently and very painfully. And Death is something that is incomprehensible to us, foreign to us. Something that doesn't feel quite right. We know it. We know it's unnatural. We know there's something amiss about death. And Father, I'm so thankful that this isn't just something that we feel or that we think, but it's something that you think and feel, that death is an intruder, an alien, a parasite leeching off of your good creation and the life that you have blessed us with. So Father, today we are so thankful that when death and hell came to visit, that you did not remain aloof and Jesus did not remain apathetic about our plight but you came up with a plan to defeat death by death and to defeat violence by succumbing to violence and to defeat guilt and shame by absorbing guilt and shame into yourself. Father, we are dealing with a mystery and a mystery and a mystery and a mystery, but we know that at the core of that mystery is this beautiful portrait, and picture of who you are, a God of incomprehensible, unfathomable, incommunicable love. And Father, while we do not understand, we worship, we praise, we rejoice, and we thank. And Father, our response seems so far short of the grandeur of the gift, but we give it anyway. Today, we do not understand what Jesus has done, but we receive it. We do not comprehend the sacrifice that you as the Father made when you looked down and saw your Son, but we receive it. We do not understand the fracturing and sundering of the Trinitarian relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit, but we receive it. And Father, if this is the price that was required... How great that price is. And we receive it. We accept it. We believe it. Father, the prayer of my heart is that we would go to those times and those dark places in our lives, whether loneliness or betrayal or hurt or abuse or even physical death, disease, and that we would go with confidence That Jesus has been there before us. And that there is a way not only into the darkness, but out of it. We believe in Jesus. And we believe that He was raised. And we look forward to discovering more about that in the future. But Father, today, insofar as we do understand, we receive and believe. We thank You in the name of Jesus. Let everyone say... Amen. God bless you all. Happy Sabbath. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching and take care.